And uh, this morning, we're going to call the, the, the message, The Moment of Truth. The Moment of Truth. Um, Esther had already gone before the king. Uh, she had uttered that famous statement uh, all the way back in chapter 4, If I perish, I perish. She, she comes before, uh, before the king, puts herself out there, you know, if, uh, if she goes into the king uninvited and he doesn't want her to be there, uh, you know, she's done. And uh, a few tables up here, if you want to join us. And um, so she puts herself out there, and, the, and she finds favor in the king's uh, uh, eyes and uh, extends the golden scepter there to, to Esther. And, and um, really, until Esther 7, she has not, uh, she's not given her request. There have, been, there have been several times now the king has asked for, you know, what's your request? What is it that you so put yourself on the line to ask me, you know? And uh, he's being very friendly towards her, and uh, she... Uh, prepares the banquet, and, and um, you know, all this is going on. And, and you know, uh, this is a very weighty matter. Her life is in jeopardy. Her people is, are in jeopardy. And so here she is. Uh, look at Esther 7 and verse number 1. Esther 7, verse number 1. It says, So the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the queen. Now, just kind of remember where we've been so we can kind of uh, get to, to where we are here. Uh, uh, Haman had been completely humiliated, right? Now, the day before, this is just a lot has happened in one day, one 24-hour period. The day before, uh, uh, Esther the queen, she invites uh, the king, invites Haman to come to this banquet of wine. Remember, we, we learned that the king loves banquets, and so she puts on this banquet. Uh, the, the king comes. Haman comes, no one else is invited, all right? So Haman's on cloud nine here. I remember, he loves, uh, he loves recognition. He's full of himself. He's full of pride. He wants to, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of number two in the whole kingdom. The, he's got the king's authority. He's got the king's uh, ring with the signet on it. He can make laws on behalf of the king, all this stuff. And, uh, and so now the queen had invited him to this banquet. They have this wonderful time. The king asks again, you know, what's your request? And she says, well, if I found grace in your eyes, uh, let's do this again tomorrow. <laughs> and, and so they kind of go home, and, uh, and everything was going well. But on the way home, uh, Haman runs into none other than Mordecai yet again. This time, Mordecai does not rise for him. Remember, before the offense was Mordecai would not bow. This time, Mordecai wouldn't rise for him. And so he goes home. He gets his wife. He gets his friends together. And he, he starts talking to them. He says, you know, basically, you know, guys, I'm a, I'm a rich man. Yeah, yeah, you're a rich man. And, and I've got all these children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you, you've got the life. You've got the dream life. And he says, but none of this matters as long as Mordecai the Jew is alive. I mean, can you, can you imagine having all the, I mean, he's number two in the kingdom. He's got riches. He's got children. And he says, none of this matters as long as I have one person in the entire kingdom that doesn't like me. I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of where it's at. Remember the king's law was whenever he came through, everyone had to bow down. And, and uh, so it's so troubling him. So his wife um, basically says, uh, you know, you should make a gallows and hang Mordecai from it. After all, the Jews already have this this decree that they're all going to be killed later in the year anyway. Let this be uh, somewhat of an announcement, if you will. Let this be um, a way to kind of um, 
uh, to kind of show the rest of the kingdom, you know, what's coming. And, and, you know, he's already got a death warrant, so to speak. I'm sure the king would sign off on it. I'm, I'm kind of reading between the lines, but that's kind of what's being said, right? So in one day, they build these gallows that are 75 feet high, 50 cubits high. And, uh, and, and in one day, this takes place. So that night, the king couldn't sleep. That would be about uh, chapter 6 now. King couldn't sleep, and uh, so he has uh, uh, his people there. He says, why don't you bring me uh, uh, the Chronicles of the Kings? Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he knew something that I know very well, that good history book will put you to sleep real quick, okay? And so he says, uh, he says Let, let's read it. And they come to the place where there's reported several years prior, I believe it was about six years prior, uh, Mordecai had spoiled a plot against the king. Uh, a couple of the people with the high-level security clearance was going to uh, basically try to assassinate the king, and uh, Mordecai reported this thing, and the king says, was anything ever done, Mordecai, for this deed? No, nothing was ever done for this deed. So the king, so this is through the night, he can't sleep, it's early in the morning, and he says, is there anybody out in the court, anybody else out in the, in the, in the, you know, out there in the courtyard? And he said, well, yeah, Haman's out there. Perfect. He's my main man. You know, he's my number two. Bring him in. And, and he says, hey, man, I got this pressing question. What should I do if I really want to honor somebody? Haman, full of himself, thinks, well, man, who would the king want to honor more than myself? <laughs> and uh, and so, he, so he's, uh, he's already got this answer. He's like, here's what you got to do, king. You ought to put the king's robe upon this man. You ought to put your crown, you ought to put all the, all the royal attire, put it on him. And have, have one of your highest officers, not just some low-level foot soldier, but one of your highest officers, let him be the one that puts it upon him. And then take the king's horse and set him on that horse and let that official march him up and down, parade him up and down the street saying, this is what the king would do to someone he wants to honor. And then the king's like, love it, go and see to it. I can't think of anybody more, more higher ranking than you. I can't think of anybody as a higher official than you. I want you to do this to Mordecai the Jew. Now, why was, why was Haman hanging around the courtyard early in the morning? He had just built the gallows. And he wanted to request of the king permission to go and kill this guy. <laughs> this guy he wanted to ask for permission to kill, he says, you go and parade up and down the streets. Now remember, what was the original offense? Mordecai would not bow down to Haman. But now Haman, in essence, is bowing down to Mordecai, marching around. This is what the Lord would do to the one he wants to honor, and so forth. So now he's got to be indignant. Now he's upset. He comes back home. His wife and his friends are still hanging out at his house. And uh, what's funny is after this whole thing, the Bible says that, that Mordecai went back to the gate. But basically, he goes back to work. Well, that was interesting, but Haman goes back home. With shame, covers his face, goes back home, and he tells his wife and his friends what had happened. Now, his wife and his friends that previous night said, you know, hey, you should build some gallows and hang him on it. These same people now are saying, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You messed up, Haman. You shouldn't have done that. While all this is going on, knock at the door. And the king's uh, chamberlains are there to say, hey, it's time for the banquet. Now, I'm sure he doesn't feel like going to a banquet at this point. I'm sure he doesn't feel like being in the presence of the king. By the way, 
you don't want to be in a bad mood when you're in front of the king. You don't want to be sad. You don't want to be grumpy. You want to have your best foot forward. You want to have your happy face on, okay? He doesn't have time to cheer himself up. It's time. Right now is the banquet. That brings us to chapter 7. So he says, so the king and Haman came to the banquet of Esther the queen. This is the second banquet, the second day. And uh, verse number 2. And the king said again to Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? It shall be uh, performed even to the half of the kingdom. Now, listen, this is interesting. This is the third time the king has said this statement. Whatever you want, Esther, to the half of the kingdom, it'll be yours. You know what that tells me? He was sincere. This wasn't just a whim where he says, oh, I'll give you whatever you want. This is now a couple days in, and, and uh, he said it now three times. There's a sincerity to it. So the stage is set. Everything is ready. Esther is uh, ready to reveal her identity. She's ready to reveal her plight, reveal her enemy, which is sitting right in front of her. And this is that moment of truth. All right? Uh, you know truth always has a moment. A moment where there's, a, there's now a response to the truth. There's, there's, a, there's a time where the truth is going to be maybe exposing some things. Everything comes to the surface. Oftentimes it seems like truth is oppressed. Many times it seems like truth is put aside and put away. But you know, truth always comes to the surface. Eventually. You know, there's, a, there's going to be a, a time of reckoning. There's going to be a time when all the wrongs are made right. There's going to be a time uh, of judgment. The Bible says even... Uh, you know, even at some point, every knee will eventually bow and every tongue will confess what? The truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. But often it seems like in the moment we think, God, where are you? That's the theme of this book. There, God's not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. Where is God? Yet his sovereignty in his hand is all over the book of Esther. So in this story, story like this, stories like this, it gives us a picture of what truth does in those moments. Uh, so I want to look at just quickly three aspects of this, uh, this story. We're going to look at Esther's request. We'll look at the king's response and then Haman's exposure. Uh, so, so the first thing we'll look at is, is Esther's impassioned request. Look at verse number three. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Now, this is very strange. He doesn't really know what this is yet. And she, she presents it in a way. She says, I need you to spare my life and my people. This is the queen. Well, what do you mean your life, right? Can you just imagine the wheels turning in his mind? Verse number four, for we are sold. So she, she's, she's now revealed something to him that, that there's something that's a, a matter of life and death that we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen or bondwomen, I had, I, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not uh, con conveil the king's damage. Uh, excuse me, um, um, countervail the king's damage. What she was saying is this, that, listen, if, it was, if we were sold into slavery, I wouldn't have bothered you. If, uh, if it was some other kind of uh, offense that was done, I would not have risked my life to come and talk to you about this. But this is a matter of life and death. What is it about Esther's impassioned request here that it, it tells us something about this moment of truth? First of all, Esther's request is a now or never request. If this doesn't happen now, then, then we're done. Keeping in mind, 
when the, uh, what, what are we talking about? Why did Esther go in there in the first place? Well, Haman had convinced the king to destroy a people group, all the Jews in the kingdom. 127 provinces, and, they, and the message goes out by postman, and it goes out to all 20, 127 provinces, that on a certain day in the last month of the year, uh, on that day, all the Jews will be slain. And here's the incentive. Anybody that kills a Jew can keep his stuff which is quite brilliant because now you don't have to pay the military to go out and do it, <laughs> right? All the, all the civilians can do it. All the citizenry can go and, uh, and basically kill any Jew. There, there's an urgency to this because guess what? That message has already been sent out. They didn't have email. They didn't have second day air. They didn't have any kind of uh, way of getting there. It was going to be by foot. And so, so at some point, there's going to be this, uh, you know, the, the, the longer the delay, the, the less chance, especially of those far regions, to, to get any kind of message that might overturn that first message. Now, remember, we've learned some things about the law of the Medes and Persians. Remember what the law is the, that's brought out in this book? It's brought out in the book of Daniel. What's the law of the Medes and Persians? You can't reverse, yeah, a law. Um, so this law has been made. And if you're going to re, uh, make a change, there's going to have to be another law added to it, tacked, uh, against it, so to speak. So this is an hour never request. She had a sense of timing. She, she had waited for this exact moment. Remember, she fasted and prayed for three days, along with uh, uh, those that were with her, along with Mordecai and the Jews that were in Shushan. Um, she went unto the king, risking it all. If I perish, I perish. She prepared that first banquet. And it had to be a nice banquet. This is the king, right? She prepares that banquet. She prepares that first banquet. She strategically prepares the second banquet. And in both banquets, she invites Haman to be there at the banquet, and, and it's all put together. The time, uh, time is of the essence, but the timing must be perfect. There is a sense of urgency. She knew that if she didn't act now, her and her people would perish. And so many times in the Bible, we're given this exact same kind of urgency, right? Paul told the Corinthians, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. There's this urgency to it. Hey, if something's going to happen, it's got to happen now. All right? Uh, uh, seek the Lord while he may be found. Uh, uh, call upon him while he is near. We have, we have this urgency all throughout Scripture uh, regarding spiritual matters. And that's kind of what we see uh, displayed in type in this, in this story, this, this urgency. Why? Because there is, there is a, a, a writing, a decree, if you would, of death, of condemnation, of judgment that's coming upon this people. It is an urgency, and, and listen, the same is true for everyone that's alive today. It's appointed to men once to die, and after this, the judgment for the wages of sin is death. There is an urgency to this thing. We see these incredible parallels here, and as we get towards the end, we're really going to see it really come clear. But, uh, but we see this urgency throughout Scripture. Don't procrastinate. If you know something to be true, if you know something to be right, you ought to do it now. You ought to, uh, you know, it, it's amazing sometimes how, how long people will put off even getting saved. They're, they're all, all the questions have been asked, it's all there, and you, and you know it to be true, you know it to be right. And there was a man when I was, uh, when I was in the Army, a, uh, a guy that was in my uh, squad that I witnessed to several, on several occasions. And, um, uh, and it was interesting because he knew the Bible to be true. He knew God to be the, you know, Christ to be the, the way of salvation. He, he, he received the gospel intellectually, but it was always like, you know, there's some things i got to deal with first. 
I got to straighten some things out. And, and he, was all, he just kept put, putting it off. And every time we had an opportunity, we'd go through it all. And he would listen. And he, and he was, you could tell, just being drawn. And he never, never responded. And I remember uh, just a couple months after I got out of the Army, I got word that he died in a helicopter crash. And uh, boy, my prayer was, Lord, I sure hope that he at least believed in his heart. Uh, I sure hope there was some, some, some uh, uh, resemblance of, of, of acknowledging Christ as Savior and, and, uh, and a repentant heart. And, and, uh, but it tore me up, the urgency of, of, of the message that we have. And, you know, so many times we see that kind of an urgency. Uh, uh, James 4, verse 13 and 14 says, go, go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go in such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. It's just a vapor. The challenge is now is the time. It was, a, it was not only a matter, uh, urgent, uh, it's a now or never decision, but it was a life and death decision. That was, that was the very premise of this. As she comes before him, she was begging her life and the life of the people. I think, again, this queen coming before the king. Now, up to this point, they hadn't talked in over a month. Remember, that's what she said to Mordecai. And Mordecai said, you got to go in there. She says, I haven't even seen the king in 30 days. I don't even know where I would stand before the king. If he's not happy with me, I could die for just going in there. And, uh, and so, so he doesn't know what's going on. And she says, listen, king, uh, husband, <laughs> darling, she's begging his, her life in the life of her people. He thinks, did I miss something here? What, 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 what is going on? You know, what's interesting is uh, uh, she, she, she could have said whatever she wanted to the king at this point. It's a matter of life and death. And he says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, even to the half of the kingdom. And she could have tacked all kinds of stuff on there and, and been selfish with her request. And, and you know, it comes to this point, it doesn't matter. All that matters is, that, is, is my life, and my people's life. This was her petition. This is why her plea was so impassioned. As she, as, she, as she says to the king, this is a very urgent thing. She's asking for her life. You know, that's what salvation is. It's a life and death decision. A choice to receive everlasting life or suffer the wrath of God for eternity. You know, some decisions... Uh, we see this kind of all throughout. The same decision was given to Moses. I, I have, you know, I give before you life and death. And God tells him, choose life. Choose life. This is what I have before you. Uh, 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 it's a life or death decision. This is a now or never decision. It's a life or death decision. And notice, it's a king or nobody decision. A king or nobody decision. No, only one person could do anything about this situation. Only one person. Right? You see, here's what's going on. Uh, the, when, when this decree went out, the Bible says there was unrest in Shushan. Shushan was the capital city. That's where the palace was. And, uh, and all the Jews that were in that area, I mean, there were Jews that worked for the government, like Mordecai. There were Jews that were involved in the community. See, they weren't under, uh, at this point, this was a, this was a post-captivity time. And these were all the Jews that basically did not go back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and so they're there, and this decree goes out, and there was great trouble going on. Now, here's what you and I do. We would, we would have been with those Jews all gathered together. This is crazy. This is unjust. 
This is falling apart. Our government is wicked. Our king is out of control. And, you know, going on and on about all the problems with people who can't do anything about it. We're guilty of that. That's exactly what we do. So we go to Facebook. We go to Twitter and we, we share all of our problems and all of our, our... What does she do? Esther goes to the one who can do something about it. The, the, the only one, the only sovereign, the only authority, uh, the only one that has power to do anything about unwriting a law that had already been written, this law of death, a law of indictment, a law of destruction. Only one person could do anything about it. It was the king or nobody. And I'm sure you see the parallel. Um, that's why she came and she, sees, and, and she petitions him for grace. She says, if I have found favor in thy sight, you know, what's interesting is when she comes before the king, she doesn't come claiming her rights as the queen. Right? She doesn't come uh, uh, asserting her position. She doesn't come arguing or acting like she's owed something. King, I've given you the best years of my life. <laughs> you better listen to me. Now, if I found favor, she's, she's pleading for grace. She based her entire request, get this now, on the king's grace. Her entire request. It was, all, it was all based on that. And what a, what a great picture of salvation. It's a now or never decision. It's a matter of life and death, and it's the king or nobody. You know, what's interesting here is just like this king had this decree of death, if you would, that went out, and it would take a new law, a new writing to overpower it. He does not undo it. Does not, he can't take it back. So it is with our God. For the wages of sin is death. God does not take back that law. He does not undo that law. So what does he do? He comes through and fulfills the law so another law could come in. That's what Romans talks about. There are basically there are two laws. There's the law of sin and death. But then there's another law in my members. And so what does he do? Colossians 2. He takes that handwriting of ordinances that was against us. It was contrary to us. What does he do? He takes it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That's the, that's the final payment that fulfills the demand of that law so that there can be a new law one of our righteousness, one of our, our standing before God. This is who I am in Christ. There needs to be another one. This kind of a little bit of a spoiler alert in the story because there will have to be a new decree that will overcome the old decree. We have the first Adam, we have the second Adam. We have the old law, we have the new law. We have the old covenant, we have the new covenant. So Esther, now I know she was going before a wicked king. But that's not the case with our king. And, uh, and sometimes I get real uncomfortable when I'm looking at the parallels and I think, really, is, this, is Xerxes the one we're comparing to God here? But in this story, yeah. That, 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 that is the type. But we come to God not on the basis of our rights, because we have none. We're sinners. We come to him with nothing... Nothing in my hands I bring, but to thy cross I cling. We come to him lost and undone. We come to him pleading for mercy. We come to him if I have found grace in thy sight. And I love what Jesus said, any man that comes to me, I will know why he's cast out. But we come to him pleading for grace, pleading for mercy. <clears throat> it's the king or nobody. He is the king. Our God is the King of kings. He is the, the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. So we see here um, 
uh, her impassioned plea. Notice, secondly, the king's immediate response. Verse number five. His immediate response. Then the king, Ahasuerus, uh, answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? You know, it's a really short answer. And notice the king doesn't say, uh, uh, okay, well, I'll look into that. I'll, 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 I'll take what you've said and I'll, I'll, I'll have my guys look into it. He goes right to action. He says, who's the guy? Where is he? And what kind of a heart does this guy have? I mean, he goes right to, to, to it. And so a couple of things he no, uh, we notice here, he says, who is he? He wanted to know the identity of this mastermind. Who is this guy? Esther never says it was one man. She just says, uh, my people and I, we're going to perish. If something doesn't happen, we're, we're pleading for our lives here. She says there's this, there's this uh, thing that's going on, but she doesn't say who's behind it. But, uh, um, but what did the king intuitively know? He knew that someone was behind this. Evil has a starting point. Evil has a starting point. Uh, it was hatched in the mind of somebody. Then he asked the question, where is he? Uh, what's the location of this mastermind? Who is he? Where is he? Little did he know the man was sitting right next to him. Can you imagine Haman at this point now, right? By the way, he's had a bad day. He's had a sleepless night. He probably had blisters from building the gallows so fast. He, he, he got humiliated earlier this very day, marching uh, Mordecai around the city. He's had a bad day. It's all he can do sitting here, putting a smile on with the king and queen, trying to look happy like he's enjoying his, this banquet, and all of a sudden, this is coming out. Can you, can you just see what his face had to look like? Could you see how he must have been squirming? This is one of those stories, man. I sure hope there's a viewing room in heaven just to kind of see how certain, uh, certain events played out in the scriptures, right? <laughs> what would this have looked like? And, uh, and so she's laying this out. Who's this guy? Where is he at? I could see Mordecai looking for exits. <laughs> or, or, or Haman. Is there a way out of here quickly? <laughs> and... Uh, uh, but these are things, you know, uh, so, so he, had a, he had a basis for his action. He, he, he's, by asking, where is he? Yeah, what he's saying is this, I, I want to do something about this right now. This isn't something that, you know, okay, I'll look into it. I'll take it under advisement. Uh, it's like, where is this guy? Not, not only who is he, but where is he? Why? So we can take care of this right now. This is something that was so urgent. Remember, he promised Esther to the half of the kingdom. And then the third thing he kind of points out is the heart of this mastermind. Uh, in, in, in his, in his uh, questions. Again, verse number five, then said uh, King Ahasuerus, uh, or, or, yeah, I always have a hard time with his name, uh, and said, said to the queen, who is he, where is he, uh, that durst presume in his heart to do so? He points out the heart. It's interesting, interesting that he knew that the evil had been born in the heart of this wicked person. You know what he was saying? He was saying exactly what Jeremiah 17 points out in verse number 9, where it says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That verse tells us three things about the human heart. It's deceitful, it's wicked, and it's unknowable. Which is very telling. You know, it's, it's interesting how, apart from scriptures like that, uh, you know, one of the things we do in our society, right, is, is kind of like, well as long as our intentions are good. Well, as long as you're sincere, right? That's kind of what we look at. But the reality is, in our flesh, how rarely are we actually sincere? 
Everyone's got an angle. Everyone's got, everyone's scheming. Everyone's got something, right? We look out for a numero uno. That's what our flesh is all about. And so this, this is a very telling passage, but, but man, you know, apart from God and apart from his word, man cannot discern his own heart. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We need the scriptures. We need the spirit of God. But the whole plot here to kill God's people was based on, on lies. It was based on dishonesty as he comes before the king. Uh, if you remember the, the story, he comes before the king and says, hey, there's a whole people that, that don't regard our laws. And, uh, you know, and by the way, up to this point, there doesn't seem to be any indication that there's really a problem with the Jews. They seem to get along just fine. All right. In fact, the Jews had an opportunity to go back home, and apparently it was peaceful enough there for them that they stayed. A bunch of them stayed. Even after the prophet Isaiah said, hey, when the time of captivity is over, go back home. They stayed. We talked about that in the earlier uh, chapters. But, um, but it was all based on that. You know, Haman here, he was wicked. Uh, and, and basically the king is saying, what, what man is willing to kill an entire people group? Is kind of the concept. And, and think about this, willing to kill an entire people group uh, to satisfy his narcissism over one man. One man not bound. He was deceitful. He was wicked. And, uh, I, you know, the reality about Haman is he couldn't even know himself. He, he, he was so deceived and so blinded by all this. And Haman is completely oblivious to his own wickedness. But you know who else is oblivious to their own wickedness in this passage? The king, absolutely. Xerxes. Completely oblivious to his own wickedness. Um, the fact that he approved all of this. He signed off. It was his law. He said, well, no, no, Haman wrote it. Yeah, well, he gave him the signet. He gave him the approval. It, uh, he took insufficient evidence by Haman uh, to make this conclusion. Think about it. It was just, just kind of hearsay. He didn't look into it, by the way. You think about how serious of a matter it is to condemn one person to death, Right? You want to make sure you've got evidence. You want to make sure you have witnesses. You want to make sure you've got the whole story because you're about to end a person's life. Think about this. This is not just one person. This is an entire people group, and it's going to be based off the testimony of one man. You see, he didn't understand his own wickedness. We talked about that earlier about how uh, the kind of people that Haman or that that, that that the king put around himself. He's the one that that allowed this edict to be signed. He's angry about a law that he permitted. <laughs> you know, even Xerxes' heart was very wicked in this. Even he can't know his own heart. Remember David in that low, low season of his life. Nathan comes to him, says that famous passage, Thou art the man that I'm describing. When he gives him this story, he gives him this story about a man who steals a sheep, a little lamb from another, uh, another person that, 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 that was a poor family and and he just had this one little lamb, and it was like a, it was like a pet. It was like a, a part of the family. And this rich man takes that lamb and, uh, to, 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 to feed a visitor. And, and David is so, so just indignant about this. He's so enraged that he says, well, the man will surely die. And then he says, and he's going to restore him. <laughs> well, if he's dead, how's he going to pay him for it, okay? <laughs> but, I mean, that's just how unreasonable he is. He's just so enraged about this. And when Nathan says to him, thou art the man, right? And he's just struck 
with his heart being exposed and his humility. What's interesting about that passage is anger is always most brutal and most irrational when it's directed at other people. You know, it's amazing. Can you imagine the change that would come into our homes and in our churches if we would extend the same amount of grace towards people that we would want them to extend towards us? When we've slipped up, when we haven't acted as Christ-like as we ought to, You see, it can't see, this heart can't see itself. It's in this moment of truth. We see uh, Esther's impassioned request. We see the king's immediate response. And lastly, we'll look at, uh, we'll see Haman's ironic exposure. See, all of this exposes Haman's plot. It exposes Haman's heart. This all exposes Haman's wickedness. Haman is now exposed. He's, he's brought to light. He's brought to the open. And this is what truth does. It exposes uh, truth is a light. Uh, truth shines in the darkest corners and it reveals things. And that's why when, when we are exposed to truth, we think about our lost state. When we're exposed to truth, the light that shines on us, what does it do? It condemns us and it shows us our, our desperate need for a Savior. When the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, there is a, there's an urgency to that. There's a helplessness to it, a, a cry, a plea, God save me. If you don't save me, I'm not, I can't be saved. There's a desperation. It's not, it's not this idea, well, I'm going to take Christ out and see how it works. Remember when Peter was uh, walking on the water and he began to sink? And he cries to the Lord, help me. And, you know, if we really put ourselves in his shoes there, in his sandals, um, Think about the storm that's raging. Think about all the things that are going on. You think that he stepped down, the Bible calls it a ship, he steps down far away from it enough to where he didn't go and grab onto the boat when he started sinking. He, 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 he's so far away that this cry of desperation, I think there's so much more than just those words on the page when we say, help, Lord. The, 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 this was a plea that, that I will die if you don't reach down and pull me out of this water as I'm sinking. I mean, it's a storm, and it's raging, and there's, there's a terrifying fear. And, and I think that is such a beautiful illustration of, of the idea when we see ourselves in our condition, when we see ourselves lost and undone, about to face the wrath of God, and we cry out in desperation, God, save me. If you don't do it, I, I can't be saved. Truth gets you to that point. The truth of being faced with eternity, the truth of being faced with your sins. Truth begins to expose things. Truth is light. Uh, the light of God's word knows no bounds. Look at, uh, look at verse number six. And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Oh, man, I wish I was sitting there. Haman's kind of squirming already. And I don't know if she points, but she says this. I think the indication is this guy right here. I mean, within arm's length. He's right here. Can you okay, now, now, now think about this, all right? The king's processing this. The king has been on edge, right? Because think about how his interest was piqued when she risks her life coming into his presence. He holds forth the golden scepter. Esther, my queen, what do, what do you want, right? You don't just come wandering. I want to see how your day's going. No, no, you could have died if I was in a bad mood, Right? So, so he's interested. What is so pressing that you're willing to risk your life? Um, come to my house. I'll give you a banquet, and we'll talk about it then. 
So he comes and shows up. They've, they've, they've had the banquet. All right, Esther, I, I'm just, I, I'm on the edge of my seat here. Could you tell, what is it? To the half of the kingdom, I'll give it to you. Just let me know what is so pressing. You're willing to risk your life for it. Well, if I found favor in your eyes, let's uh, do this again tomorrow. <laughs> oh, so he's waiting. You know, he had a sleepless night, right? I wonder if that was causing him to stir, just wondering what it is. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but he couldn't sleep. And, and of course, we know God kept him from sleeping so he could bring the, the book before him and so forth. This whole thing unfolding just so beautifully. And now it's the third time. Esther, I got to know, what is it? She tells him. My, life, my, my life's in danger. I'm going to die. My people are going to be killed. Well, who did this? And, and, and who is he? And where is he? What kind of a heart would, 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 would concoct such a plot to destroy an entire people group? Uh, what, what, who is this person? Well, he's right here. I mean, can you just see the king's fuming? He's trembling. Haman's trembling. All this is going on. It says, uh, then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. Yeah, rightly so. And the king arose from the banquet of wine in his wrath and went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up and made requests for his life uh, to Esther, the queen. So, so the king is so upset, he goes out. And he's like, I need to get some air. <laughs> and he starts pacing, right? He's thinking through, let's not, be, uh, let's not do anything you'll regret. Let's not, you know. And he's, he's kind of going through this whole thing. He's upset. It's been, it's been revealed. All right. And, uh, and uh, look at verse number eight again. And it says, um, uh, well, let's finish verse seven here. Um, um, <clears throat> um, it says, and Haman stood up and made request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. <laughs> He's discerning too. Uh, verse number eight, then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was and, the king, and then said the king, will he, will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. This is amazing. Haman doesn't even have a chance to defend himself. He couldn't even say a word. It's not what it looks like. It's not what you think, right? Verse number nine. And uh, Harbana, one of the chamberlains. Now, this is interesting. This is one of the chamberlains all the way back from chapter number one, 10 years prior. This is one of the chamberlains that, that suggested uh, putting away his wife. This is one of the ones that suggested having a beauty pageant way back when. He's there, and, uh, and, and before the king, he says, uh, Behold also the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good of the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. <laughs> Pretty amazing. In verse number 10, So they hanged Haman on the gallows they had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. What irony. Haman's ironic exposure here. A couple of things about, about his exposure is, first of all, he occupied an ironic position. He was, he was now in the same position he put Mordecai in, a position where an indictment had been against him, uh, one that was not fair, and his only, his only chance of, uh, 
uh, of, of you know, his only chance is basically to have Esther plea for him. Remember Mordecai, right? This decree goes out and Mordecai comes to Esther and he says, you are our only hope. It just might be that you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this, you know, and, and don't think that just because you're in the palace, it will escape you. And, and uh, you know, this just might be why you're here. So she says, you know what? I'm going to go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. And we see the whole thing. And Mordecai's only hope was Esther the queen. Now Haman is put in the same situation. The word of Esther condemned Haman. So Haman now pleads with Esther. Put in this, on a very ironic situation here. How the tables have turned. But notice also he suffered an ironic judgment. Now, he already would have been executed, I think, for what he had done based on, based on Esther's revelation. But notice that he's being, something, he's being judged for something he did not even do. What was, what was Haman doing when, when the king stepped out? He was pleading with Esther. Please, please, please. Now, he's probably pleading in kind of a forceful manner uh, uh, for him to be fallen upon her bed, but nonetheless, he was, he was pleading with her. The king comes in. What does he do? He assumes he's doing something immoral, Right? doesn't even have a chance to defend himself. His face is covered and he's taken away. And, uh, and in essence, he's being judged for something he didn't even do. The king made a knee-jerk emotional decision, not knowing all the facts. Now Haman was the one that's going to suffer for it. Well, earlier, the king made a knee-jerk reaction, not knowing all the facts, and all the Jews would suffer for it. See the irony turning around? I, I think it's just the most beautifully poetic story. I mean... Um, uh, when you look at all this, the same thing happened to Mordecai. The position was ironic. The judgment was ironic. The execution was ironic. Mordecai was the one that was supposed to die on the gallows that he had made. He had made him the day before. They built it hastily. He was going to go get the approval. 50 cubits, 75 feet high for everyone to see. This was not just going to be a simple execution. This was going to be on display for all the people to look upon. Now the exact same thing was going to happen to Mordecai. The execution is ironic because he built the gallows for Mordecai. And now he was going to be on it instead of Mordecai. It was ironic because Haman financed it. It was, it was his resources. It was him. He's the one that put it up. Haman financed his own destruction in essence. Uh, uh, Psalm 7, verse number 15. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. <laughs> That's exactly what took place. And I love it when God kind of turns things around, by the way. Uh, uh, on uh, Tuesday night, we were with our teenagers, and uh, we were talking about the story of, um, of uh, Tyndale. And interesting, during Tyndale, during the last part of uh, his uh, translation work, uh, he was out of funds, and, uh, and the government was basically buying up every copy of the scriptures that they could find to burn it. And they were paying a ransom for every, every Bible that they got their hands on. And so a counselor came to uh, Tyndale, a Bible translator, who would later be burned at the stake for translating the Bible in the English language. And, uh, and they said, uh, he said, hear me out now. He said, uh, if we give up the Bibles that we have, we could actually print many times more for each one we give up. And while, while the Catholic Church and, and working in cahoots with the government was uh, trying to destroy the Bible, they were actually funding the printing of the Bible. That's what God does. When the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, the Bible says that God spoiled the Egyptians. 
and they left with all the gold and all those things from Egypt. You know, it's just amazing when God will do these kinds of things. Here, here the enemy of Mordecai, <laughs> though he's going after Mordecai, he finances his own demise. He digs a pit and he himself falls into it. The execution is ironic. It was for Mordecai, but now used on Haman. Financed by Haman, he finances his own destruction. And it was ironic because, because this chamberlain, uh, uh, Harberna, probably mispronounced that, but uh, he was the one who suggested it. You say, well, why is that ironic? It's interesting. The gallows were made for Mordecai, and, uh, uh, you know, he, he, comes, he comes to the king. And notice what he says there in verse 9 again. He says, Behold also the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoke good for the king. You know what he does? He brings, he brings it up. He said, he said uh, you know, Mordecai, the one that saved your life, king? Haman had a plan that he was going to hang Mordecai on those gallows. They're prepared for him, this guy that you now have great affection for. You paraded him around the streets, uh, showing honor to all the people, and, uh, and uh, he's got this prepared. What's interesting about this guy is 10 years earlier, this was one of the king's top counselors, this chamberlain. The king listened to him. And somehow... Uh, the idea is all of a sudden this man, Haman, kind of rises to the scene, almost like he kind of leapfrogged over these other chamberlains, becomes that number one counselor. But now who is the king listening to? He's listening to the other chamberlain. The whole thing about it, it's irony. The whole thing about it, it's the, the table's turning and, and uh, uh, you know, things are just not working out well here. And uh, definitely ironic. Now he's the one, this, this chamberlain, who... who uh, uh, who, like, who likely felt slighted by Haman, he's now the one that's being used to, to explain to the king what Haman's, pl- uh, Haman's plan was and how Haman ought to be executed. The man that was so full of himself. The man that was so, this Haman, the, uh, so uh, intent on everybody loving him, everybody honoring him, everybody bowing when he comes through town. The man that puts his worth and what people thought of him above his own riches. Remember, he was a wealthy man. He had, he had a huge family. He talks about the children that he has. I mean, all the things in this life we might look at and say, say this is what it takes for success. This is what, uh, what it's all about. This guy is living large. <laughs> he says, it doesn't matter unless everybody loves me. That's kind of the point, point that he got to. He put all that worth into it. So what's going to happen? He's going to die. Not only a gruesome death being hung, but it's going to be a very shameful death. It's going to be on display for everybody to see. The one who is so concerned with what everyone thinks is going to be hung in front of everyone. The moment of truth. You know, as we consider this, there are a lot of spiritual parallels that, you know, with this and, and the urgency of the gospel. And, you know, just a kind of a question as uh, we're done here is, uh, what is, what is your moment of truth? Is there, is there something God's placed in your life, uh, something that, 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 that you've been dealing with? Maybe... Maybe you've been putting off getting saved. Um, it's the moment of truth. Him that knows to do good, do it not to him it is sin. Maybe, maybe the Lord put something on your heart, uh, 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 some, something, some, some, some biblical principle that you've been delaying or, or some, something that God's put there. It's time to do it. Uh, there's the urgency we learn from this, right? Uh, uh, it's a very urgent in the timing. It's many times a life or death situation. And you might think, well, it's not that big of a deal. Well, watch how the thing grows when it's left undone. Whatever it is that God's placed in, uh, on you, there's a great reminder that, that we need to be wise about it. We need to have a timing about it. As Esther, uh, it, you know, it kind of looks like this laid out 
like, you know, it kind of took a while, but, but really there, Esther understood the urgency. And this really all unfolded within just a couple days. And, uh, and uh, I love just the, the poetic justice that we see here. I don't know why I get so excited with this passage. <laughs> I just, I get all worked up about it. But, um, but uh, you know, the, the fight in this book of the Bible is actually just about to begin as we consider this book. But here's where everything starts to turn around, this moment of truth. Grace in the king's eyes and the enemy is destroyed. And, um, well, we have a word of prayer before uh, we head over to service.